Tonight is our Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, Decolonizing Your Faith Thursday. Um, And tonight we're only going to be reading one book. Um, This is probably going to be a short broadcast um, due to some other responsibilities I have this evening and tomorrow. Um, And just as a reminder, we will not be on on tomorrow, but we will be back on Sunday for our Sunday Dialogue on the Life Nation page. So you can find that page and you can like it and turn on the bell for notifications and we'll be on Sunday at 2.30 p.m., usually about an hour to uh, share with you on our Sunday Dialogue. So again, I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. Tonight is all about um, decolonizing our faith and getting an understanding So I'm going to start out really talking about something that um, I've been thinking about all day, on and off. I don't know if you've ever had those instances where someone says something that doesn't sit right with you or doesn't sit well with you in your soul, in your spirit, however you interpret that. And those that fleeting thought or that that um, declaration will tend to kind of float in your mind back and forth throughout your day and and it will sort of interrupt your stream of thought and that's what I found this particular statement doing today I started to write about it last night when it happened but I said you know what I'm gonna sleep on it and if it doesn't you know if the thought goes away then I'll know that, you know, it wasn't something that I need to come back and focus on. But rather than the thought going away today, it kept coming back into my thoughts while I was trying to get other things done. And so I'm going to talk about that first before we jump into White Too Long by Robert P. Jones. So what is it that kind of captured and held my attention some of my day today? I recently heard a fellow female, fellow spiritual leader, say something to the, uh, to the nature of, or to the extent of, I'm done explaining things. Um, they seemed very fed up, and they were like, you know, I'm tired of explaining things to people. We need to move on. Certain things are in the past. And I don't want to, you know, I don't have time to explain anything to anyone. Well, if anybody knows me, I mean, that's all I like to do is explain things. (laughs) So when I heard that statement, it was like something within me, like utterly rejected that notion of not being willing to explain things to people or being willing to leave people behind because your impatience says that you no longer want to explain things. And I wanna talk about this because, especially if you are a spiritual leader, right? A, A part of the calling, really, of spiritual leaders is to help people see the light. Whatever that light is that you are ascribing to, for me, is the light of Christ. So for me as a spiritual leader to say, I'm no longer going to point the way to the light, or I'm going to just leave people in the dark, 
and say, figure it out yourself, that would negate part of my responsibility as a, as a spiritual leader, if you follow me. So when I heard that statement, I thought about it and I said, well, what does it mean to be a, a leader or, or what does it mean to be in a spiritual position and you are and you know that you're called to explain things right some people i realize don't feel that calling they don't feel the calling to explain possibly because they're not a teacher <laughs> all right and so if you are a teacher a part of the role of a teacher is to bring people into knowledge and wisdom and understanding, right? We talked about in one of my previous broadcasts, the word education, which comes from educere, which actually means to extract what is on the inside or to help pull out what is on the inside. And so a part of an educator or a teacher's job is to help people learn how to go within to extract what is inside of them and bring it out or bring it into manifestation. And so if you're not a teacher, then you might not feel the passion behind helping people to know things or the passion behind um, breaking down information or the passion behind um, helping to explain things in a way that people's, that light or that illumination in their mind will come on and they will begin to go within and dig deeper, right? And so if I'm not a teacher, if I'm not careful, I can almost dismiss the very important role of explaining things to people because that's not my calling, right? And we know in, in, in terms of the gospel, there are different roles for spiritual leaders. We call them functions, right? Some spiritual leaders are there to help people build. Some are there to help people plant. Some are there to help people um, pull up or root out different things. Some are there to encourage people's hearts. Some are there to explain the message of salvation. Some are there who have oracles or they have messages from God that they're able to give to people and bring enlightenment in that way. So we don't want to discount someone's role just like you wouldn't want someone to discount um, your role in life. You don't want to discount the role of other people. And so I think the reason why that, that particular statement hit me a certain way inwardly is because I am an explainer. <laughs> The, the, the words that the Lord gave to me when I asked him, when I went to the Lord and I asked him, who am I called to be in the earth? He said, you're called to be a mental abolitionist. You are called to help people get free in their mind because that's where most bondage begins and that's where most seeds of uh, bondage and entrapment and oppression and suppression are planted. So I just wanted to put that out there. You know, don't discount the role of other people and what they're called to do in life, but also don't discount what you're called to do in life. 
And so if you're like me, you're an educator, you're an explainer, um, you believe in helping people get to the root causes of things, um, yeah, celebrate that. Don't let anybody minimize that particular role um, because it is an important one. Everybody has a role to play. Hello, uh, Lady uh, Travell and Lady Latoya. And I do have some others on here. I don't see your names yet, but hello to you. Hello, Pastor Ben. So it's important that we don't minimize the roles that people play and their calling and their purpose because we don't understand it or because that's not our call or our purpose. All right. I'm going to hop into White Too Long by Robert P. Jones. I'm probably going to do about 15 minutes of reading tonight. Um, and then I'll find a good stopping place. And then if you want to comment on tonight's broadcast, I'm going to bring those of you who want to come in. in. Make sure that you have a camera icon because that will let you know whether or not you can actually join in on conversation. So we're on page 45 and we are in the chapter entitled Remembering. Remember the subtopic of this particular book is the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. So we've been talking about remembering, remembering the roots, remembering where these things started. And we ended with um, a conversation around Medgar Evers and how and how Medgar Evers really faced a lot of opposition from other air quote Christians. <laughs> but they were white air quote Christians. Okay? So we're picking up that conversation here with Medgar Evers in his struggle for civil rights during a time when white Christians were opposing the efforts of civil rights of people of color, African Americans, Black Americans. I know, again, people say it's over and we should move on, but it's very interesting that as we read this, you're going to be hearing some very similar things that are happening right now, which is why explanation is important because those who do not understand their history and those who do not understand the past are doomed to repeat it. So we learn about the past, we study the past, so that we don't keep going back into the same cycles of dysfunction and oppression. The attempt to integrate the largest white Baptist and Methodist churches in the state was the last action that Medgar Evers would oversee. Just two days after these white churches turned away black worshipers, he and King held a sparsely attended meeting at the Black New Jerusalem Baptist Church to discuss the weekend's activities and the future of the movement. While Evers realized that most of the people in the pews opposed integration, he had been deeply moved by the resignation of Galloway's ministers. He told King what they said, what they did, refusing to preach in a segregated church, that has made me feel better than anything in this whole movement in many days. King told him he would pass his sentiments on to Selah and Fur, then said the last words he would say to his friend Medgar. See you at the office tomorrow, Medgar. 
good night. Everett stayed at the church to finish some work before heading home to his wife and three young children. As Evers got out of his car just after midnight, a gunman shot and killed him in the driveway. The murder weapon, including a fresh fingerprint on the rifle scope, was found in a nearby field and traced to Byron de la Beckwith, Jr., a member of the White Citizens Council in Greenwood and an active member of the Greenwood Episcopal Church of the Nativity. And again, when we talk about domestic terrorism, we're dealing with very similar actions by people who have very similar ideologies about the position of black Americans and other people of color in this country, and they hide behind the cross with their actions to try to justify their domestic terrorism. So again, we see history, the past, as William Faulkner said, the past is not past. We still have people in this country that have these sorts of attitudes that they claim they're doing these things in the name of God. Okay? So this man was willing to put an end to Medgar Evers' life, this church-going, white Christian council, community council man, was willing to go put an end to Medgar Evers' life to slow down integration. Just think about that. Childhood memories, racial desegregation in Jackson, Mississippi, 1970s and 1980s. At this point, Robert P. Jones is talking about the color line that was patrolled in churches. He talked last time, we talked about how they would bring these particular prisoners um, to churches to speak. And they would only sort of bring out the black person that was thankful that a white person had led them to Christ. And they were fine with those presentations um, as long as it was sort of, you know, complimentary to the person who had led them to Christ and, you know, they would, the, the bailiff would come, allow that person to come into the sanctuary. They would say their part. They would talk about Jesus, talking about the black prisoner. They would talk about Jesus and then, you know, they would be escorted out. That kind of testimony from a black person in these all-white settings was acceptable. It's sort of how we have uh, this issue of what we call today the white savior syndrome. We are, we are happy to present or we're happy to accept a black person that will paint us all in a particular way, that will paint us with a certain perspective that always shows us in a positive light. And so one of the things that the writer is, is talking about here He's talking about how this instance of this black prisoner being brought out has stayed on his mind and on his consciousness. He said, a black kid sitting in the pews among us was perceived as a much greater threat than a black prison inmate performing on our church stage. The white Christian shuffle, contemporary efforts to address white supremacy amongst Southern Baptists. 
White Christians, he says, and even my own childhood home denomination are gradually beginning to face the bare fact that white supremacy has played a role in shaping American Christianity. But they've been too quick to see laments and apologies as the end rather than the beginning of a process. They also remain full of contradiction and too quickly avert their eyes when the weighty implications of history require concrete, sustained action in the present. At a 1995 meeting in Atlanta that commemorated the 150th anniversary of its founding, the Southern Baptist Convention finally got around to apologizing for its perpetuation of racism, its role in defending slavery and Jim Crow, and its failure to support the civil rights movement. Now, if you try to bring these things up to certain people, they are still in denial that this was the creed of the Southern Baptist Convention at the time. They did not wholesale. There were maybe a few people in, in the middle of it, but for, for the most part, the whole Southern Baptist did not, I repeat, support the civil rights movement. They supported Jim Crow. And that's something that certain people still refuse to own up to and acknowledge that it was that it actually happened and that it was a problem. The messengers at the convention voted to pass a formal resolution in 1995 that repudiated historic acts of evil such as slavery from which we continue to reap a bitter harvest. They also acknowledged that SBC churches failed in many cases to support and in some cases even oppose legitimate initiatives to secure the civil rights of African Americans and issued an apology to all African Americans for condoning or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime. The 1995 convention also saw Reverend Gary Frost of Youngstown, Ohio elected to second vice president, making him the first African American to reach that level of leadership. Shortly after the resolution passed, with only 12 minutes of discussion, Frost rose to the podium to play out a piece of contrived cultural theater that seemed to imply that a kind of magical reconciliation had instantaneously occurred. He issued a brief declaration, quote, on behalf of my black brothers and sisters, we accept your apology and we extend to you our forgiveness in the, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Enthusiastic applause erupted from the overwhelmingly white delegates. In less than 15 minutes, 150 years of Southern Baptist white supremacy was seemingly absolved. Given the SBC's white supremacist legacy, this resolution received widespread attention, including the front page in the New York Times. But while some black religious leaders welcomed the move, Many others, such as Reverend Arlie Griffin, pastor of the 4,000-member Berean Missionary Baptist Church in Brooklyn, and historian for the historically African-American Progressive National Baptist Convention, was more skeptical. Citing the denomination's long legacy of racism, Griffin replied, it is only when one's request for forgiveness is reflected in a change of attitude and action that the victim can then believe that the request for forgiveness is authentic. 
25 years later, the SBC is still wrestling with the legacy of white supremacy and still attempting to step straight from confession to absolution without pausing seriously over the question of restitution and repair. Now, if you look up the word reparations, you look up the etymology of the word, it means reconciliation. So for all the people saying that we need to be reconciled, what you're you're actually saying is we need to be repaired. There can be no reconciliation while you're bypassing reparations. Just let that, just sit with that, okay? (laughs) There can be no reconciliation without reparations, without restitution or repair. The trajectory of two prominent white denominational leaders who were a part of the 1995 working group that produced this apology demonstrates just how difficult real changes of attitude and actions are, just how deep the defensive impulses live, even when there is an explicit attempt to move away from a racist past. In spring of 2012, Richard Land, the director of SBC's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and one of the chief architects of the denominational racial reconciliation efforts, made incendiary comments on his radio show about the killing in Florida of Trayvon Martin at the time, an unarmed black teenager by a self-appointed neighborhood vigilante. Land asserted that President Obama had, quote, poured gasoline on the racialist fires and that Reverend Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton were hustlers who were using the case to try to gin up the black vote for an African-American president who was in deep trouble for re-election. After a public outcry, Land lost his radio show, was forced to apologize publicly twice, and by the end of the year had stepped down from the position he had held for 25 years. The second key figure is Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, the oldest SBC seminary which was founded in 1859 in Greenville, South Carolina, but relocated to Louisville, Kentucky after the Civil War. Moeller presents a case study in the limitations of how far even the well-intentioned white evangelicals are willing to go to reckon with their white supremacist past. On the one hand, Muller has a long history of working to address the denomination's racist history. In 2015, 20 years after his work on the apology on slavery, a self-described white supremacist named Dylan Roof murdered nine worshipers at a historic black South Carolina church. Muller responded by posting an article on the seminary's website addressing the legacy of white superiority in the theology of the seminary's founders. And most prominently, in 2018, he led Southern Baptist Seminary to create a report documenting and lamenting the institution's support of slavery, racism, and Jim Crow. Now, I'm going to put in a side note here because here is what I have learned in my 42 years of life on this earth, 43 now. I've learned that one of the ways that our white brothers and sisters procrastinate about taking action about what they know to do 
is through reports. We're going to study it. We're going to philosophize it. How many more years do we need to study the fact that racism is wrong and we need to bring repair? I'm going to continue my reading. But Muller's approach represents what I've dubbed the white Christian shuffle, a subtle two steps forward and one step back pattern of lamenting past sins in great detail, even admitting that they have pernicious effects, but then ultimately denying that their legacy requires reparative or costly actions in the present. It's a sophisticated rhetorical strategy that emphasizes the need to lament, lament and apologize, but give scant attention to the question of justice, repair, or accountability. A careful reading of Muller's 2015 language helps to illuminate the inner workings of this strategy. So, we're going to stop there for tonight, but I want you to think about how many white Christians in your life are doing the white Christian shuffle? How many of them will come on your page and they'll talk about how bad it is and it seems like that's just the way the world is and it's just the evil that we have to deal with. They'll, they will lament and they will give apologies but when it comes to justice, repair, and accountability or justice, accountability, and repair when it comes to that jar, that jar is still empty. So I want you to think about that on tonight. I'm done reading for tonight. Uh, if you would like to join me and respond to what I've just shared, you can type I'm in in the chat and I will bring you on. To my anchor.fm listeners, I want to thank you for your time and attention. If you would like to join our conversation, we are always live on my Facebook page, Daring Dialogues. Until next time.